Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter number 5 again, and we're going to continue uh, with another one of Jesus' examples of uh, what we've been calling uh, maybe true righteousness or, or heart righteousness. We've, we've uh, had a few terms for it. Um, the idea, though, is that, as we've said a few times, skin-deep righteousness is not enough. Jesus is calling his followers to more. And uh, from murder to adultery to divorce to truth-telling, Jesus has over and over again revealed that we cannot think we are righteous simply because we skate by according to the letter of the law. And he's been, as we've gone through these things, we've seen him repudiating or, or explaining uh, the common misunderstandings or misinterpretations of the laws that he addresses along the way. Now, I have a little bit of a warning uh, today. This is one of those messages where the introduction is pretty long. And uh, if you're thinking, well, your introduction is going to be long and your sermons can sometimes be kind of long, then that's long plus long equals really long. Um, hopefully, it won't turn into that. I think, the, I think you'll see that it's, it's a lot of introduction to get to the main points today. So just bear with me and uh, try not to tune out, even though we had a really uh, hearty breakfast this morning. Um, the example that we see this morning in Matthew chapter number 5 comes to us down through history as a principle that is known as the lex talionis. Now that's a Latin term for the law of retribution. Let's just read this passage and I think you'll see what we're talking about here. Matthew 5 beginning in verse number 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. Some form of a law of retribution, or we might call it punishment meeting or fitting the crime, has been part of many societies throughout history. Now, historically speaking, the first time we read some sort of an eye for an eye principle is in the the Code of Hammurabi. Um, That's the first place it comes up, which was written about 1800 years B.C., The principle existed there in Babylonian culture where equal retribution was to guard against abusive or severe revenge. By the time it came to Roman culture, which was somewhat pervasive, of course, at the time of Christ, uh, the principle of an eye for an eye was interpreted more loosely. It included things like monetary payments for physical or material harm done, but the principle was still there. And by Jesus' Jesus' day, in the Jewish Mishnah, there were certain prescriptions that were very similar to the Roman concept of of monetary payments that should be made for harming someone else. For instance, if you read in the Mishnah, one example says, He who boxes the ear of his fellow pays him a selah, which was two shekels. If he smacks him, 200 denarii. It's interesting to see that An eye for an eye had turned into a dollar for an eye, but the concept was still there. 
These were cultural interpretations of that original version of an eye for an eye. Now, because of Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5, a lot of people repudiate the concept of an eye for an eye altogether in any way, shape, or form. But, again, Jesus was not repudiating the law. And this concept was and is in the law of Moses. So we have to discern what exactly is Jesus talking about here. Even though the law of an eye for an eye was technically written in the code of Hammurabi uh, before Moses wrote it down, the fact that it exists in the Old Testament indicates that in the economy of, of God's order, it existed even before Hammurabi wrote it down. So in order to understand Jesus' explanation, we need to understand how does the law of Moses use this concept, this principle. And it's found uh, primarily in three different places, and I want to read those for you this morning. In Exodus 21, uh, verses 22 through 25, we read this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, in that passage, the eye for an eye principle is is seen in the case of a physical altercation uh, between men or among men that affects the well-being of a pregnant woman. If men are fighting, whether together or just in general, and and a, a woman with child is struck, there is a judgment of a fine if 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 the child comes out because of that harm, and if there is harm to that child, then it is to be repaid. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. Whatever the judge says, the, the principle here was in that context, in the judicial context, it would enact a worthy punitive measure for a crime of a physical nature. Another example, Leviticus 24, verses 18 through 20. It says, whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now here the principle of an eye for eye puts the responsibility, it puts the weight on the guilty party to make their right uh, to make their wrong right by the principle of an eye for an eye. If, if they kill an animal, then the animal should be replaced. If there's, a, if there's a physical fight and there's a fracture or an eye taken out or a tooth, whatever injury that he has given, the law said that that should be repaid equally. It stresses the importance of a measure of a punishment that fits the crime. One other example, Deuteronomy 19. Verses 15 and following. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties in the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests, and the judges who are in office in those days. 
the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is false, is found to be a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now here's an interesting example of eye for eye retribution. This is an example that kind of qualifies all of these examples, all of these social, uh, societal, punitive actions. They must be on the basis, this text says, of multiple witnesses. In other words, two or three witnesses at least to establish a crime that has taken place. And they're always in a judicial context. It says they had to appear before the Lord, before the priests, before the judges who were in office at that time. And... Here in that passage, the severity of the punishment is against a false witness. And that kind of strengthens the idea that this kind of punishment and judgment is only to be undertaken in the context of a legitimate legal proceeding. In other words, there was no room for these principles to be put forth just personally. In other words, if somebody cuts off your arm, you weren't supposed to just turn around and cut off their arm as well. Even in the Old Testament system of order, there was a judicial measure that had to be taken place. In other words, by God's standard, every accusation and repayment had to be well established. It had to be ordered. So the principle of an eye for an eye in God's law was legitimate. And it was protective in a couple of ways. It protected the victim... By prescribing an appropriate legal punishment for the guilty party. But it also protected the guilty party when they were guilty of minor crimes from receiving undue punishments from an overreacting victim. So it was a legitimate principle, an eye for an eye, to be carried out in a judicial context in the presence of two or three witnesses to exact an appropriate punishment for a crime. So why then does Jesus address this principle here? Well, in human experience, we understand that the concept of an eye for an eye, uh, lex talionis, to use the fancy term, it always becomes more than a judicial action. What do I mean by by that? I mean by that that in one way or another, we always tend toward personal retribution or personal repayment. We're eager to stand up for personal property, for our personal belongings, personal space, personal rights. And this is especially true in our culture now. And it is true that in our founding documents in the United States of America, we are granted these freedoms. And there's, there's nothing evil about those things. It's, it's good. And those freedoms are good insofar as they're not placed so high in our priority that they turn into selfishness and repudiate the law of love of neighbor. That's really at the heart of God's law. That's what Jesus has been teaching us. So Jesus is not trying to abolish the principle, the the Old Testament use of 
an eye for an eye. He's, he's not negating the original intent of that principle, and he's, he's not calling for political pacifism either. Nor is he teaching the abolishment of, of judicial sentencing. Those were all still legitimate in Jesus' eyes. Now, again, before we get into our text, we're still in the introduction. Hang on for just a few more minutes. Really, in Scripture, we see two legitimate uses of the eye-for-an-eye principle. Firstly, we see God's ultimate revenge. A very familiar passage in Romans 12, verse 19, says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we see it in the case of God's revenge, and secondly, we see it in the case of the government's just dealings. Also in the book of Romans, chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the government, according to the Apostle Paul there, still bears the sword as God's agent for good. Now I know where our minds go here. Well, what about when government is corrupt? And oftentimes government is corrupt. But I would suggest to you that the government in our day is no more or less corrupt than it was in the day of the Apostle Paul. Now, certainly Paul is not suggesting that in the case of, of being ordered to uh, commit clear treason or unrighteousness against God's word, Paul's not suggesting that we must obey. But what Paul is saying is, as a rule, God has ordained governmental authorities to bear the sword in order to promote good and to suppress evil. And even through the fog, we still experience that today. There is a just use of an eye for an eye when it comes to the government dealing with law-breaking. Ultimately, God is the righteous judge. He will enact due justice on all evildoers. And in all these things, we are called to not personally avenge. So Jesus then, in this case, is, is speaking of our personal attitude in case of disputes. He's speaking of our personal disposition in the case of conscription, in the case of punishment, in the cases of requests for help. We're going to see all those things in this passage today. He's pointing us away uh, from being hyper-focused on what we deserve in that moment and pointing us to the righteous act of dealing graciously and with mercy, we really see several of the Beatitudes played out here. We see meekness, we see mercy, we see peacemaking. And as we read through this passage and study it today, here's the big idea from Matthew 5. 
Christ's true righteousness compels us to take an open-handed approach to life while trusting the one who judges justly. And he gives us examples of four different things. Retaliation, belongings, time, and finances. All of which are very precious to us, if I have to be perfectly honest. So, let's dive into this passage then. Read again verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, we're all incredibly familiar with that principle. We usually shorten it uh, to simply the words, turn the other cheek. And uh, this is one of the, the timeless sayings of Jesus, although I suppose they're all timeless. But this is one of the ones that, that finds its way into culture in a permeating sense. Sometimes it's, it's even unhitched from its original author, Jesus himself. But the, the saying is very common, turn the other cheek. Now, sometimes this saying is, is taken to build ethical principles, to take a stand against certain wars, to take a stand against international disputes or, or local government disputes. And uh, that is part of a bigger conversation. But again, I, I don't think Jesus is addressing those issues in this passage. We saw, we've already noted in both the Old and New Testament, there is a distinct purpose in the government bearing the sword as part of God's ordination and his institution. And it's not in vain so long as it suppresses evil and promotes good. That's sort of the litmus test. We must view Jesus' words here as they were intended. And Jesus wasn't addressing uh, the Sanhedrin of his day. He wasn't addressing the Congress of the United States or the Parliament of England or the, or the Cabinet of North Korea. He was addressing individuals. And he was addressing the individual desire for retaliation, for retribution, and for revenge. Turn the other cheek is, is a principle that is easier said than done. Would you agree? Now, we have been calling Jesus' teachings radical in this section, and they certainly were, and they still are, compared to the common understanding of these principles. But Jesus isn't introducing new teaching here. He's simply reinforcing the heart of God that existed in all the scriptures. For instance, in Proverbs 24, verse 29, it says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay back the man for what he has done. In other words, don't say, I'm going to get him and repay him. Proverbs 20, verse 22 do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. So the principle of an eye for an eye, as we've seen it in the Old Testament, was and is a good and right principle in the context of a public legal proceeding. But it's never a personal principle. And that's where it crosses over to be hard to swallow. At least in my personal experience. What Jesus is teaching here and what was taught in the Old Testament as well, like in those Proverbs that we just read, an eye for an eye is not a personal principle. 
Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil. That is, don't resist in a hostile way. He's not calling us to simply lay down and die whenever we're up against any kind of oppression. But he's saying, don't oppose them in the same way that they have opposed or injured you. Don't be known as a fighter or a brawler, like in those Proverbs we just read. Uh, Don't be known as explosive or reactive or retributive. Whenever an eye for an eye crosses over from a, a public due process justice into a personal retaliation, then we have crossed over the lines that God has drawn in his wisdom. Now, what might an eye for an eye look like in a personal, non-legal context? If you were part of our anger study a few weeks back at Collide, you'll remember that we saw one of the clear marks distinguishing um, some kind of righteous anger from sinful anger, which is most of our anger, is the mark of retribution. Personal retribution is simply not commended in Scripture, and in fact, it's spoken against quite regularly. As soon as we say, I am hurt, so I will hurt, we have crossed that line. As soon as we say, I have been mistreated, so I will mistreat, we've taken matters into our own hands. As soon as we say, I just want to get even, then we've missed the mark of God's ethical righteousness in that regard. Growing up with two older brothers um, who were quite a bit older than me and therefore larger, and I can tell you stories of my childhood trauma that is still uh, flowing down from those days. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I had a good childhood, and I have a great relationship with my brothers now. But one of my brothers, I won't name which one of them, um, his favorite saying was, I don't get mad, I get even. (laughs) And uh, you can imagine how that might have been played out in brotherhood, in pranks, and in all these kind of things. And uh, Seems like he always got ahead, uh, not just even, but regardless, that's a silly example. But we understand that, don't we? We understand the the desire to say, well, I I don't want to get ahead. I don't want to get angry. I don't want to sin. I just want to get even. I just want to repay. I want to be back on the same plane. It's like we, we give ourselves a bank account of retribution that says, well, I can spend this much, and then we're, we're back on the same plane. And as long as we do that, we're okay. But Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And revenge and retribution are, are not always played out in physical violence. There, there are severe cases of retribution where there's no physical violence at all. For instance, you hear stories all the time where one person in a relationship commits unfaithfulness or adultery, and as an act of retribution, the innocent party goes out and does the same to get even. That's a form of an eye for an eye being played out in a nonviolent way. There are disputes and disagreements in relationships where one person might just totally shut down for a number of days and refuse to communicate. Now that can be a wall of protection, but it can also be a form of retribution. There are cases, on the other hand, where disagreements turn into arguments 
which turns into an all-out, knock-down, drag-down, verbal altercation, and one person might belittle or criticize the other person's character because they feel they're being disrespected in the disagreement. Now, that's totally verbal and psychological, but it's, it's an eye-for-eye retribution applied in what I would consider, according to Jesus' teaching, an unrighteous way. There are cases where driving down the road, you're being tailgated by a person, and uh, when they finally pass you, you do the same to them. That's a form of road rage, <laughs> and it's also a form of an eye for an eye, retribution in a perceived wrong. And you might be thinking, well, I can see this in some cases, but some of these, Aaron, are just silly. But are they? Or does it reveal to us that all that Jesus has been saying, that our righteousness has to be more than skin deep, is true? It's pervasive. This affects every part of us. And we could go on and on, but we see how we all struggle with this in one way or another. It's, it's not normally the big things like physical attack or harm that we're wanting to avenge. It's usually the small things. But small instances of personal revenge reveal a bigger problem. Now, those are all negative examples. But what about a, a big positive example? Consider 1 Peter 2, verses 22 through 24. Speaking of our Lord Jesus, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, did you hear that phrase in the middle of that passage? Jesus continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, we've already read this, but I'll read it again. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And if we read on, Paul says, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These obviously all follow Jesus' teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling his disciples, his followers, not to avenge themselves. And he gives us not just a teaching, but he also gave us an example. He was the righteous man who did not avenge himself. How could Jesus say, blessed are the meek? Because he himself, though God in human flesh, was meek in the truest sense. Righteous meekness in this area is not a lay down and die meekness. Uh, the, the, the reference escapes me, but in one of the passages of Jesus' trials, he was slapped by one of the leaders and he challenged them on the basis of legal proceedings. In other words, there was a legal trial that was proceeding and uh, one of the officials committed an offense against Jesus. Now, he didn't slap him back. He did challenge him, though, on the case of the legal proceedings. Jesus isn't saying to lay down and die, but he is saying, don't take revenge into your own hands. 
Righteous meekness is not a lay down and die meekness, but it is a trust yourself to the one who judges justly meekness. If we're in a dispute, a disagreement, if, if, our, our, if our feelings are genuinely hurt, if we feel betrayed, if we've been wronged, and it's okay to feel those emotions, it's okay to cry out to God in those emotions, those emotions may be very valid and they represent the situation well. It's not a sin to feel emotions, but when we turn to an eye-for-an-eye attitude in those cases, we've missed the likeness of Christ that we're all being formed into as his body. Now that takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? It takes faith not to act out. It takes faith not to have a mental breakdown. It takes faith not to curse someone under your breath. It takes faith to take the next step forward, even though you can't get over the pain. It takes an immense amount of faith, but it's not a blind faith. It's, it's faith in the faithful and just God. He will avenge all evil in his way and in his time. Now, we can even recognize that in our prayer. Lord, you know how betrayed or hurt I'm feeling. And I know you're a God of justice. So take the burden of vengeance away from me. And give me, rather, the burden of love and trust. Jesus not only taught these things, he displayed them even to his dying breath as he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, as we go through the rest of these examples, hopefully quickly in this passage, uh, we see that it all comes down to this same principle. Faith in the Lord who deals justly. Faith in the Lord who provides. Faith in the Lord who ordains all things. So let's keep reading. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So we must trust the Lord with revenge. But we also must trust the Lord with our possessions or our belongings. Now, this goes back again to an Old Testament example. Exodus 22, uh, verses 26 and 27 say this. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Jesus was referencing here a law, a law that was meant to protect the, the abjectly poor. The law said that their cloak, which was their heavier outer garment, could not be taken from them in a pledge or in a lawsuit. The idea was that this person is clearly so poor that they don't have anything else to be sued for. They might not even have a home Or if they do have a home, this cloak was probably their only shelter and blanket in the cold of the night. To take that from him would be to despise his dignity as a human being, regardless of whether he had done wrong. And Jesus isn't negating that law here, but he is saying that the principle of righteous living goes even beyond that. And he turns it around. And he says, if someone sues you for your tunic, which would be your lighter garment like a shirt, give them your cloak also, even though they can't take it. Give it to them. 
Even though you have every right to not be sued for your coat. If you're in the wrong, give it. Give it to them. I think Jesus speaks here against guarding our personal property jealously. Here, it's, it's in the case of wrongdoing. Obviously, there's, there's a lawsuit taking place. And, and apparently, apparently, the lawsuit is just. The tunic is awarded in the lawsuit. And Jesus says, don't hold so tightly to your possessions. Now, this can go both ways. Think of this. If someone is suing you for the shirt off your back, perhaps they don't have a shirt for their back. Or if someone is suing you for the shirt off your back, perhaps you don't have much more than the shirt off your back. Rich or poor, we shouldn't hold so tightly to our possessions and hold them in such high regard that we view them as the ultimate sign of doing well. The principle of he who dies with the most toys wins is a pretty destructive principle in our lives. Whether rich or poor, guilty or innocent, we ought to have an open hand with our possessions. This too is a sign of trusting the Lord who deals justly. We trust him to avenge us when we're wronged and we trust him to take care of us in all other situations. Remember the parable of the rich fool, the one who was going to tear down his barns to build bigger because he had so much uh, increase and such a harvest? He found his security in his wealth. And Jesus told that parable. And he said to this, he said this after he told it, Take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life, listen, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We must trust the Lord who deals justly in retaliation. We must trust him also with our possessions. Thirdly and quickly, we must trust him with our time. For each day is the Lord's. Look at verse number 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, this is a tough one for me. Maybe it is for you. Um, I don't have a lot of, relatively speaking, a lot of money or possessions to harbor. Now, compared to, to many in the world, I do. But in the context of our nation, I don't have tons and tons of things um, that I can harbor and hold tightly to. But what we all do have each day is the same number of hours and minutes. And we usually find that they're not enough. Now, the situation that Jesus was referring to here uh, in this passage is a, is a case where there was a form of conscription or forced labor. That was common in the Roman rule of Palestine. We see this played out in the crucifixion narrative, don't we? Where the Roman soldier compels uh, Simon to carry Jesus' cross for him. And it was common in that day for a Roman soldier to compel a citizen, including the Jews, to carry some of their equipment or their belongings or their burden for one mile. That's what they were allowed, one, one Roman mile. That was an allowable conscription. Now, Talk about a politically charged issue. Think about this. Not only in that day are, are many Jewish people very upset about the Roman government's place in their society at all, but to add to it this forced labor, this indiscriminate forced labor, was to add insult to injury. Injury. 
Now, there were a whole class of people that we read about in the New Testament and in other works of history about Jesus' day called the Zealots. This was a a group of Jewish people who resisted uh, what we might call this tyranny. And uh, these people were fiercely devoted to the freedom and the independence of Israel as a nation. They would have fought tooth and nail, and they did, to avoid this kind of conscription, even for the one mile, the permitted one mile. And to them, at least they would have felt singled out. To them, Jesus says, if someone compels you to go one mile, fight back, tooth and nail, resist. You have personal rights. Israel should be its own. No, he says, go a second mile. Interesting. Interesting. Now, the ways this could be applied are probably many. But I considered it in the realm of time. Because we too live in a culture that values independence. And again, that's not an evil thing. We we value it and we treasure it. To be compelled to go one mile for someone that we don't know, maybe don't like, would be an offense to us as well. But Jesus says our attitude toward those things should not be so brash. We must consider even this within the realm of trusting the one who judges justly. Now, maybe this conscription was inherently wrong. Maybe it, maybe it was government overreach. Maybe it stemmed from wicked rulers and magistrates. But Jesus says, go not just the first mile, go the second mile. Go above and beyond to portray the meekness that he has already described in your life. This is the kind of overcoming evil with good that Paul comes to refer to in Romans 12 that we read about. This is the kind of living that heaps burning coals upon people's head. They don't understand it. It, It's like when you go grocery shopping and uh, you get your belongings, you pay for them, you get out to your car. And and if you're not like me, you actually look at your receipt and uh, you're looking down through and you realize, hey, I, I have this item that I didn't pay for. And uh, you go back into the store and you talk to the customer service and you say, listen, there was a mistake. I, I got this item. I didn't pay for it. I need to pay for it. They usually look at you like you have two heads. Especially if it's a small item. I mean, we could easily justify it. We say, well, it's, it's their mistake. It's, it's not my problem. I don't have time to go back and fix their errors. But in the meekness of Christ, we're compelled to go the second mile. You never know when loosening your grasp on your time, your individual preferences can portray the meekness and love of Christ and lead to a gospel conversation. A conversation about our righteous judge. The conversation about our Lord who has both taught us these things and also died to pay for our unrighteousness and to make us like him. And a conversation about not grasping so firmly on our individuality, but trusting the one who judges justly. Lastly, verse number 42. Jesus addresses, in one way, our finances. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This last example has to do with giving and lending, and it touches the most sacred thing in our life, 
our money. Now, we all appreciate a good return on investment. Uh, I'm, I'm not an investor. I'm not a financial wizard, but I, I have a father-in-law who is, and uh, I, I willingly trust him with uh, things like our retirement uh, savings and that kind of thing. I don't have the mind for it, but I, I value a return on investment when he tells me, hey, this, this did this. I'm, I'm happy about that. And uh, we're all like that. We appreciate money working for us. We appreciate a good deal. We appreciate saving a buck and stretching a dollar. Um, a dollar or a penny uh, saved is a penny earned, right? Uh, we should be good stewards of every gift that we are given, including our finances, We are called, in fact, in Scripture to count the cost before making large decisions. But I think there's also a place where stewardship of God's gifts includes actions and attitudes that don't always result in a good return on investment, at least in terms of dollar for dollar. Now, do Jesus' words here... Give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do they teach us that we would have to give to every professional beggar who could be gainfully employed but refuses to do so? I personally don't believe so. There are clear cases in Scripture uh, against this kind of enablement. But if in every case of seeing someone in need, the first question we ask is, well, do they deserve my help? What have they done to get here? And it's possible that we're thinking too selfishly in that regard. When we remember that all we have is the Lord's, and we remember that ultimately we're trusting in Him who deals justly, then we might have a a little bit of a softer grasp on our $5 bill when someone is clearly in need. A couple examples from Scripture. It comes down to who or what we're trusting in. Proverbs 11, verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of their riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 1 John three seventeen and 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So of all of these things, Revenge, belongings, time, money. We have to ask, I have to ask, is there a place where my grasp is dangerously tight? Have I convinced myself that while, yes, God is good and he's ultimately in control, my hand's grasp is more secure than his? Now, we might never verbalize that. But how many areas in our life could be we in how many areas in our life could we be exhibiting this kind of unrighteousness simply because as humans we like control in the irony of all ironies we fight and strain and grasp for security in our time and our belongings and our finances and in our revenge but in doing so we neglect the one who actually provides all security Think of a little child who gets a dollar bill 
And they insist that they must hold on to it. And they must carry it. Instead of letting their mother put it safely in her purse. Because they don't want to lose it. And usually what happens? It gets lost in the mud pie or in the, in the, in the seat cushions of the couch or whatever. So many times, that's my attitude with life. Jesus isn't calling us to reckless abandon, but he does call us to live with an open hand. An open hand is simply trusting the one who deals justly, just as he taught and just as he has shown us. I was having a conversation with a a friend in ministry this week, talking about uh, the difficulties of, let's just be honest, the difficulties of people, right? We're all people, and we all know that if the world didn't have any people in it, it would be a great place. I mean, it would just be wonderful. And uh, we were talking about the, the concept where, and you know this as friends and loved ones and even as parents, you know when you're trying to help someone, and you can see the good. And it seems like you're pouring an inordinate amount of effort into helping them see that. And it takes a long, long time. That's especially true with children. And, uh, and my friend said, he said, one thing I've learned, he's much older than me, he said, one thing I've learned over the years is that ministry is not efficient. And that's true for all of our lives as believers. Living for Jesus in in following his righteous ways, is not efficient, humanly speaking. If we're looking for a quick return on our investment in life, we're probably not going to get it here. Jesus has also told us, though, that those who do receive their reward here, that's all they get. They've got it. They've received their reward. I've been challenged incredibly this week uh, to stop looking at my life, whether it's parenthood or my relationship with Lizzie or with friends or in my relationship with the, the Christian school or at church here in ministry, to stop looking at my life like I have to see an immediate return on investment. Just as it's not ours to avenge because God will repay, also it's not ours to see the return on our investment. God will repay. Some plant, some water. God gives the increase. And that's true in every one of our lives. And I was reminded of this simple but profound reminder that I memorized as a little boy in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Uh, More modern translation says, he will make your paths straight. We don't have to figure it out. It's ours to walk in the light that he gives us, in the way that he gives us. It's ours to trust in the one who judges justly. And Jesus has given us both that as a teaching and as an example. Let's pray. Lord, your word is good and your ways are good. Lord, may I not live my life 
either in revenge or investment, with an eye-for-an-eye outlook. May I loosen my grasp on whatever I'm holding too tightly to, my time, my finances, my, uh, my dignity, whatever it might be, Lord. May I firmly grasp your faithfulness and your truth. Lord, to those here today who are believers, they have been saved uh, to become more like you, Lord Jesus. And you are making us, your church, shaping us into the likeness of your body. So may we pray and may we work with the grace you've given us to that end. May we be ever thankful, Lord, that you did not save us to leave us where we were and as we were. You're showing us your righteous ways. And in them we are blessed. And Lord, if there is one today here who who all of these things are foreign, uh, all they have to grasp onto is their, their personal belongings, their personal time, their personal dignity. Lord, may they see your beauty today, Lord Jesus. May they see your sacrifice on the cross, your dying in your righteousness, your, uh, your willingness to lay down your life for our sins. May they see it in the glory and the wonder that it is. May they come to trust you. May we give you all the praise and honor, for it's you alone that it's due. We ask your blessing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.